Well, we are uh, first Sunday of the month. We're doing a series called Rejoice, uh, the Year of Rejoicing. So we take uh, a week off from 1 Samuel, and a lot of the heavy themes are in 1 Samuel, and just remind ourselves about everything the Bible says about rejoicing in the Lord, delighting in the Lord, um, what really God calls us to do, constantly reminding us to be rejoicing, even in this life, even in the midst of suffering and hardship, that we still, God is calling us to rejoice in that. And so today we're going to read a passage that talks uh, about all those things, rejoicing in all of those things from uh, Romans chapter 5, the beginning uh, part of Romans chapter 5. So would you please stand if you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's Word. This is God's perfect and inerrant Word from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, Unless you are some kind of financial guru, most of us, the way we do our taxes and withholding is we end up getting a big refund at the end of the year. April comes around and, you know, you're on April 14th, or I guess now it's April 18th, is it? It changed up? Something like that. Anyways, last last day of the tax year and you're up at 3 o'clock in the morning filling out the rest of the tax forms, getting ready to fax them out and send them out. (laughs) <laughs> what everybody, everybody does it like that, right? So there you are at 3 o'clock in the morning and you fill it out and you see the big refund that you're going to get uh, from the government that's going to come in a, in a month or so or be deposited into your account. And what do you do? Well, I, do, I start rejoicing. I'm like, that, I like, it's, almost, it's like I have that money in my hand already. I start thinking about what I'm going to do with it or how that's going to help us or we, how we can put it into our savings or how we can pay something off or what we're going to do with that. I, it's so sure and certain that that money is going to come from the government because it's by mechanisms that are outside of me uh, and it's guaranteed by the government. I'm so absolutely sure and certain that check's going to come. I can start rejoicing in it right away. Now, why am I telling you about rejoicing in tax returns? Because the New Testament is constantly calling upon us to rejoice in something that we don't yet possess fully, and that is our salvation. Uh, We are, uh, when we talk about our salvation, we talk about it in, in tenses. We have, we'll talk about that we have been saved. Jesus' work on the cross, his completed work on the cross completed everything that was necessary for our salvation. Uh, And we can also say that we are being saved. In our current life, the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to us, regenerates our hearts, brings us to life out of death, and and is now working in grace uh, to uh, slowly but surely grow us 
into Christ's likeness, that we are being saved. But there's also a component of our salvation that we don't possess yet. So we also talk about we will be saved, and that is the final glorification of our bodies when we are resurrected from the dead and we are glorified in a glorified state, living with God forever. That's what we're all waiting for and looking forward to. And the funny thing about the Bible is it constantly talks about and encourages us to rejoice in that final glorification starting now, even though we don't possess it yet. And it does it over and over again. It's constant in doing that. The purpose is because our natural tendencies, our natural inclinations is to be fearful, uh, to, not under, to, to not count that as a certain reality. I, I don't know about you, but when I ha- something tough happens or I have an epic fail in some way, my first reaction oftentimes is, well, I must not be really safe. And what does that mean for my salvation? And so, because God knows that we are dust, because He loves us, um, because He wants us to be assured that we are really saved, uh, He's made it really clear what to look for, what the evidence is of that is. And it, it, might, it may be very different from what you think. And so we're going to look at that today. This passage uh, that I picked out is remarkable and it gives, it gives three out of the four really main evidences or main ways that God has given to us to know for sure whether we belong to Him and to know for sure whether or not we can count on our future glory as a certainty, so much so that we can start the party now. So that's what we're going to look at. <clears throat> this, uh, that, this passage that I just read, uh, it gives us three main things and it presents all of those things as things to rejoice in. So let's look at those things one at a time. Before, before I tell you the first one, though, just take a guess in your head. What do you think the Bible presents as the primary way for us to know that we are saved? There's all kinds of answers to that question. Some people might say uh, our Christian maturity or the development of our fruit or uh, some people, unfortunately, might say uh, uh, our works what we do, the good works and the good deeds that we do are all evidence of that, but that's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says this, first and primary evidence of our salvation is our faith, that we believe. Uh, look at, look at uh, verses 1 and 2. Let's read them again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, Jesus, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This this passage, this passage right here is a transitional part in the letter. Right before this, in the letter of Romans, Paul's just spent a lot of time explaining what justified means. And justified means that God declares us to be righteous before Him. Even though we're still sinners, God says, when you place your faith in Jesus' completed work, I will count or I will consider you to be just as righteous as Jesus is because He gives us the righteousness of Christ. Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross paid for all of our sins. And it says right up front that we have been justified by our faith. And so, one of the most beautiful things about Christianity 
in, in opposition to a lot of other religious systems in the world is that the only requirement, the only real requirement is a simple faith. And so the first question that we ask ourselves is, do I believe it? Do I really believe in Jesus as he's presented to me in the Bible, that Jesus died for my sins, that he gives me his righteousness? If you believe that, that is evidence of a supernatural thing has, uh, has occurred in your life. Listen, listen to what Jesus says in, in uh, John chapter 5, verse 24. He says this, one of the most stunning statements in the New Testament. The Pharisees are like hounding him, wanting to know what works they need to do in order to be saved. What do we need to do? What's our to-do list? What's the checklist? What do I got to accomplish? What level do I have to attain? Just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. And Jesus comes back by saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, believes him who sent me, has, present tense, eternal life. And if we're confused about that present tense, he goes on to say, He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When we believe, that's the transition point between death and life. We may physically die, but our physical death is only a transition into the beauty of eternal life. Uh, So what is faith then? The next question might be, what is faith? And and faith is... Uh, faith is counterintuitive to everything we've been trained to believe since we are kids. Uh, ever, since birth. We have been trained since birth to believe in self-confidence. Uh, self-actualization. Uh, <laughs> it's all kind of fancy terms for it. Basically, that we uh, improve ourselves by moral effort in order to become a, uh, uh, um, acceptable to God. And the ap- the, the, the c- faith is the complete opposite of that. Faith is not self-confidence. Faith is, is Christ-confidence. It's trust in what Jesus has done. There's an old Latin word for our, what faith is. It's called extra nos, which means outside of ourselves. It means that we are looking to something that someone else did to bring uh, salvation to us. Here's, here's, a, here's an analogy to make that make more sense. Now let's, let's, imagine, let's imagine that we, uh, we go down to San Diego Bay and we're going to have a jumping contest from uh, Broadway Pier to Coronado Island. And let's say it's me uh, and Gandhi and let's say Chuck Norris. And we're all going to jump, right? I'm not in really great shape. But I have all, and let's say we all have, the, all, we, we have this, all the self-confidence in the world that we are absolutely going to make that jump. We are just overflowing with bravado that we can do it. And I go running down the pier and leap off and I make it maybe 10 feet. Now Gandhi is very, Gandhi's very holy man, very morally righteous. He runs down the pier and he gets maybe 50 feet. And Chuck Norris, because he's Chuck Norris, he runs down the pier and he jumps and he makes it maybe a hundred, hundred feet. But all of us fall short of the island because the distance is too great. There's no amount of training, there's no amount of moral improvement that we have the power to do to make that jump. It's just not possible 
for us to do it. And the same is true with the gap between us and God. The gap, the moral gap between us because of our sin is too great for us to ever make that jump on our own. Now, let's consider second second scenario. Let's say uh, I am uh, offered to ride in a car across the Coronado Bridge, but I'm terrified of heights. And so I'm kicking and screaming. I'm terrified. I don't want to get in the car. I'm convinced that the car is going to go over the side of the bridge and crash into the water, but I have someone with me who's consoling me, helping me, encouraging me, and I have just barely enough faith to, okay, okay, and I sit in the car, but I'm closing my eyes. I'm terrified. A couple of times on the way over, I freak out and try and jump out the window, but my friend grabs me and grabs me and pulls me back in the car and holds me down, and we make it. We drive across the bridge, and I make it to Coronado Island. The difference is I can have all the faith, all the faith in myself that I want to have. It's not going to be enough to bridge that gap. But if I have the tiniest amount of faith in the right thing, if I have the tiniest amount of faith in that car to take me across that solid bridge and I get in, even if I'm terrified, even if along the way I'm scared and want to jump out the window, (laughs) that tiny amount of faith is enough to get me across. And on the trip, Jesus is holding on to us, encouraging us, strengthening us, keeping us from jumping out the window of the car and getting us across safely. That's what he means when he says a mustard seed of faith could move a mountain. Not even just move a mountain, but bring a spiritually dead person to life even if we were in a boat at sea in a giant storm, if Jesus was with us in the boat, we're perfectly safe and can know for sure that we're going to make it to the other side. Uh, that's what faith is. It's trust. It's, it's trust in the right thing. And when we do that, when we have our faith in Jesus to get us across rather than ourselves, look at everything that faith guarantees. It guarantees peace with God which is uh, not, not the peace of God. The peace of God is that love of God which consoles us in the midst of crisis or in hardship. This is peace with God. It's the ending of hostilities from God towards us. Our sin makes us enemies of God and our faith ends that hostility so that we have peace with God. We're at peace with Him. He's, 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 he moves from being our judge and transitions into the position of being a loving and good father to us. And that is the second thing. We are uh, at, we have access to grace in which we stand. That's not talking about a one-time event, the grace of salvation. It's talking about the, the realm that we now live in. We live in the realm of grace under Jesus as our Savior. And having that grace, that guarantees our final destiny, our final glorification. When this says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that's saying rejoice in the hope of being, uh, of being glorified, of being in the presence of the glory of God for heaven. And it guarantees it. It's a, it's a, it's a chain of events. If we have faith, it means we have peace. If we have peace, that brings us into the sphere of grace. If we are in the sphere of grace, that means that will necessarily end in our future and permanent glorification with God. 
forever. Hope in the ancient Near East is very different from the way we use hope. We use hope to imply doubt. If we're driving out of the house and I ask Nisa, did you turn off the oven? She'll say, I hope so, which means maybe not. And so we turn around. But in the ancient Near East, hope meant a different thing. It meant a sure and certain reality guaranteed by God that we don't yet possess, but we know we will because it is God's It is God causing it to happen for us in our life. So, listen. The primary evidence, over and over again in the Bible, primary evidence that we belong to Jesus, that we are saved, is if we believe in the finished work of Christ uh, as presented in the Bible, that means we have been saved. And if that's true, if we have that kind of, that faith, if we believe in that, The Bible says that we can rejoice in our future glorification as if it's already happened. We can start the party now. And Paul does all the time. He's partying, rejoicing in that and encouraging us to do the same. So, which that leads to another question, which is, how do I know my faith is genuine? How do I know I really, I really believe? Because that can be easy to attack too. Do I believe enough? Uh, Is my faith, do I have enough faith? I hear people say that a lot. And that's where the second evidence of our salvation comes in. The second evidence of our salvation given here is that our faith perseveres in hardship. Our faith perseveres in hardship. And that's an important distinction. few months ago, we, we, we did a year of rejoicing sermon in First Peter, and I talked about, uh, I, I talked about my first job as, in Encinitas, at the Encinitas coin shop, where part of, my, part of my work was testing gold. People brought gold in, bulk gold, and I would test it uh, to make sure it was tr- real gold, and then we would buy it. And people would come in in the hopes that their gold was real, and we would submit it to these, these acid tests, where you would scrape it with sandpaper and then you would take that sandpaper and bathe it in acid and if it was real gold it would bubble in, in a certain color and you know you would know through that test through the scraping and through the acid of that test that the gold was genuine and that's what this is talking about listen listen to verses three through four and not only that not only do we rejoice in our in the certain hope of our future glorification, not only that, we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now when you read that, it sounds like what he's saying is that it's, we're, we're talking about character of, of person. You read that fast, or read that first impression is that the suffering because that's true. Suffering and hardship does improve our character as people. It makes us more patient, makes us more gracious, makes us more humble. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about... Um, uh, this is talking about... This, the word for, for character is a word that means proven genuineness or something that's tested and shown to be true. And so it's, this, it's speaking of our faith. It's not speaking of our character as people. That would, be, that would be problematic if our assurance of faith was dependent upon our, um, 
our need to work on our character uh, in a behavior modification sense, that would be problematic because then my dependence, my assurance would then again be on my self-confidence and not on what Christ has done. And it also would be confusing because there are plenty of people who are not Christians who have excellent character. So what's the difference? Uh, the difference is that this is talking about the proven character or genuineness of our faith. Here's what the word means. It means to try to learn the genuineness of something by examination and by testing. Often through actual use to test, to examine, to try to determine the genuineness of something. So it's talking about the character of our faith. That gives us assurance. Here's the chain that works in that. If we encounter hardship and suffering and we endure through that, enduring through that hardship and suffering, if our faith maintains through that suffering, it proves that that faith is genuine faith. And then if we're proven to have genuine faith, that means that our faith is real and that we can absolutely hope in the future glorification that God has promised us. That's how that chain works. Endurance, suffering builds endurance uh, or, or, or endured suffering shows the genu- reveals the genuine nature of our faith having been revealed that if we, when, once we know that our faith is genuine, then we can, the hope is a certain surety of our future glorification. Now, uh, so suffering and hardship, uh, it, can, it can show the, 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 it can show the genuous, genuineness of our faith. It can also show the disingenuineness of our faith. It can also reveal what we are truly believing in and truly wanting from God, what we are truly hoping in. Some people experience some awful tragedy in life and they say to themselves, uh, if there was a God, he would have never allowed that to happen to me and they cut and run. That was my story when I was 15. My mom died and I said, if, if, if there was a God, he would never allow that to happen in, in real life. He would never have allowed that to happen to me and I am out and I stopped believing. Uh, some people, you know, what they want, what is social status or social power and when Christian faith causes ridicule uh, they cut there's, an, there's, a, there's a great article by Dean Abbott talking about uh, how Christianity is, low social, is a marker of low social status in our culture which is so true it's a brilliant article and if, if, if what you really want in life is high social status, when you realize that Christianity will bring ridicule and mark you as low social status, people cut. Because what they believed in, what they're hoping for, what they wanted God to do for them was bring power, honor, respectability. And when it didn't do that, they cut. Or some people just want God to do a certain thing for them, and when something else does that, they don't have any use for Christianity anymore. Uh, and there's a million scenarios like that. You don't have to go into them. I have a really good friend who was in the church for a while, and then at the end of the day, after two or three years in the church, he ended up meeting a, a woman who was not a believer, and they ended up getting married. He drifted away from the church. When I asked him what happened, he goes, well, you know, Christianity just didn't work for me. I'm glad it works for you. That's great, but it just didn't work for me because working 
for him, the definition of working was getting, getting him married. And when God didn't come through with that and he found it elsewhere, he cut. And so that hardship, the suffering, it shows us, it reveals what our faith is truly in and what we want God to do. And so listen, if, you're tr- if your faith is in Jesus, in the forgiveness of his sin, and your hope is in, future, is, in the, is in future glorification, in being with God in heaven. Those are not earthly things. And so no earthly gain or no earthly loss can shake that because that's not what you're hoping in. And that in itself proves our faith to be genuine. It's in the right thing, Jesus, and it has the right hope, eternal life. So, we don't, this is not saying that we rejoice in suffering for suffering's sake. We're not masochists. Um, it's also not saying that we should look for suffering as a work, something that we can do to earn God's favor. I have suffered greatly, therefore God now owes me. Both, both of those are um, very easy to get caught up in not what this is talking about. We should never look for suffering or hope for suffering, but when it does come, we can rejoice even in the midst of it because of what it reveals about us, that we truly have, we have real faith, that that faith is a supernatural gift from God, therefore it cannot be shaken or taken away so that we can rejoice in the certain hope of glorification, of being in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth with God forever. You can, you, know, you can ask yourself a question with that. When you endure hardship, when you get into suffering, does it draw you closer to Jesus? Is that your reaction? Not even like how you emotionally handle it. I mean, sometimes I emotionally handle hardship and suffering terribly. <laughs> Awful, right? But what I cry out for is, Jesus, help me through this. Does the suffering, does the hardship, does it make the thought of, of, being, of being purified from this awful world even sweeter to you? If those things are true, that means that you're trusting in the right thing and it means you're hoping in the right thing, which means your faith is genuine. And the third thing, the third thing is this. This is my favorite part of this whole passage. Third evidence of our salvation. You ready for this? is the internal, subjective, and emotional experience of God's love. Now, maybe some of you are crawling in your seat a little bit because subjective uh, is almost a bad word, especially in our tradition. Um, uh, (laughs) Experience. Is also somewhat of a bad word in our tradition, even though the Puritans talked a lot about experiential theology. Uh, and so, yes, look at objective truth is very, very important. A revelation of God always guides and directs our experience, never the other way around. But we become unbalanced. We have made objective truth the sixth sola of the modernist rationalist reformation. 
in objective truth alone. Listen to what this says. This says that the indwelling spirit, which is something that God gives us, it makes known to us the intensity of God's love for his kids internally. Listen to what this says. 5.5. Five. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now look, let's talk about objective truth first. Yes, super important. Even in this even in that verse, uh, the put to shame it is talking about future judgment. And so uh, when it says that our hope will not put us to shame, it's saying that our sure and certain hope in Christ from our faith, uh, we can know because of our faith in Christ now that we will never face future judgment. Jesus has already faced that for us. So we will never face that. Um, Uh, And much of God's love for us is, in fact, revealed by external, objective, historical events. Everything from in the Old Testament, uh, the story of the Exodus, all of God's mighty works in in redemptive history, and especially the cross, are objective truths, are objective historical realities that reveal to us the extent of God's love for his people. He loved us so much, he was willing to die for us. But this verse is different. It's talking about a subjective internal knowledge of God's love that's produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Listen to all the things the Holy Spirit does. It says, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.15, says that the love of Christ from the indwelling Holy Spirit has the power to control us. Uh, even in uh, Galatians 5, the love of Christ through the power of the Spirit is able to restrain us from sin from sinning as hard as we would like to. Amen? <laughs> Praise God. Listen to Romans 8.15. Paul, in the same book, says this about the indwelling Holy Spirit. It says, We have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's bringing us into that intense, personal, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe as our Father. And then it says, The Spirit himself bears witness... That lets us know with our spirit that we are children of God. That's something the Holy Spirit is revealing to us. Isn't that great? Now, it's not just God's warm, fuzzy feelings towards us. I mean, our definition of love and culturally is so corrupted from what love is. Love is, is, is the commitment to the well-being of another. So God's love for us really is God's commitment uh, to our good and to our salvation. But the internal, uh, through everything that he's done, all of those historic works, the cross particularly, but the internal subjective uh, witness of the Spirit to us is that those things are true for us personally. The Holy Spirit lets us know that. Listen to this, uh, in King James Version, this used to be, the, uh, the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart. The word means, it's the word's picturing pouring something into a vessel to the absolute top. Think about like filling up your gas tank at the gas station and you're there like pulling the handle until you get absolutely every last drop of gasoline you can get into that tank. You absolutely feel it. 
to the brim. It's saying that the Holy Spirit fills us up, tops us off from our head to the tips of our fingers in the knowledge of God's love for us as one of his kids. This is what Douglas Moo says. (laughs) I'm kind of driving this point home, right? Because anything we talk about subjective, we talk about experience, we talk about emotional, our tradition kind of freezes up. Uh, What do we do with that? Here's Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo is a, uh, probably written uh, certainly one of the top three commentaries on Roman. He says, What in the Old Covenant was, in some respects at least, external, has been internalized in the New Covenant. And it is this internal, subjective, yes, even emotional sensation within the believer that God does indeed love us. Love expressed and made vital and real concrete actions on our behalf but also love that gives us the assurance that hope will not disappoint us, meaning personally. So look, experience, problem with experience, the problem with subjectivism is that when people use it to trump the objective reality of Scripture and and it's in contradiction to that, that's a problem. But when when it's in concert with Scripture, there's a place for this. There's a place for us to understand that as God's kids, he's witnessing to us. The Holy Spirit's a real person constantly witnessing to us, you know, in different levels, at different times, that we really belong to God. Um, You know what happened? And here's the funny thing about it. Maybe this isn't funny. Not ha-ha funny. But the times when this happened, when I personally experienced this, most often is in the midst of the epic fail. <laughs> the epic fail. I've done something and I'm like, oh, wow, that was super sinful. And in, right at that moment when I'm confessing, repenting it, and I'm expecting the harshness and severity and the discipline of God to come through and make me feel as guilty and ashamed as I should feel, I'll oftentimes just be flooded with this sense of God's love for me. It's the craziest thing. Um, He is a good father. He will discipline us. Oh yes, he will discipline us. But the Spirit is always disciplining us in love and reassuring us of God's favor and reassuring us uh, of God's uh, protection and love for us personally. So what's that mean? Summing it all up. What do we do when the devil tempts you to doubt whether or not you're really saved? What should you do? Work harder? <laughs> Get back in, that, in, your, in your devotional practice? Uh, double up on your Bible reading? The first thing you should do is ask yourself, do I believe this? Do I believe what the Bible says, that I've been justified, I've been made right with God completely by what Christ has done for me? And if you can say yes to that, no matter what else is going on, if you can honestly say yes, not only do I believe in that, I desperately need it, you can know that has, has been a supernatural work that God has done in you and he will preserve you and that faith guarantees your future glorification. And the second thing you can ask yourself is, has my faith held through hardship? 
Have I been some rough patches in life? Have I been tempted to run? Have I been tempted to give up on God, but my faith held? In the middle of the chaos, I might, maybe you said to yourself, where else would I go? You alone have the words of life. That is evidence of genuine faith. And the third thing is, you can just, in those moments of doubt and hardship, you just ask, God, do you love me? Do you love me like the Bible says you love me? And there's a place where the Holy Spirit can assure us in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your table, we hope that you would remind us that you are the giver of all good things. Lord, um, we are so tempted, Lord, to look inside of ourselves for assurance of our salvation in all kinds of different dressed-up ways. Do we have the right theology? (laughs) Is our faith strong? Do we produce fruit in the right amount? But what you say is, we should look at, do we believe? Have you given us the faith, the spiritual eyes to see the reality of Jesus? So Lord, help us to look to you and look to Jesus and look to the promises that you have given us when we doubt our faith, Lord. In those moments of fear and hardship and doubt when the devil is trying to tempt us to run Help us to run to you. Help us to be secure in the promises that you've given us, to know that our faith means that we belong to you. And as we do that, as we run to you, and as we behold your glory, as we behold the beauty uh, of your character, that you would be drawing us in. And through that, that you would be making us more like Jesus. So Father, we pray that you would help us to truly rejoice in all of these things as if the party has already started because it has. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.